Famished Craving, Reflections on the Role Fame Has Played in Human Affairs, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 11. Anyway, what I want to do, really what I want to do this morning, this is too much preparation, what I really want to do is talk about Virgil's notion of fame. Now, Virgil, in a sense, represents the Greco-Roman notion of fame, but Virgil has been regarded for a long time, particularly in the Middle Ages, Virgil was regarded as a, as a, as a, uh, a kind of pre-Christian, a, a Roman prophet, so to speak, not only because of the fourth eclogue where he talks about the, uh, you know, the, the Messiah coming and so on, but because he seemed, and I think it's appropriate, because Virgil seems to know too much for his own good. He understands the process too well to be able to give total allegiance to it, even though he's taken on literary projects which require total allegiance. So he writes these poems like the Aeneid, uh, in which uh, he's, he does all the things about fame and the glory of Rome that one would expect, but he can't help himself. He keeps cutting across the grain, deconstructing it as he goes. So I think the Aeneid is one of the most fascinating text, ancient text we have, and I went back into it this last week, and I haven't taught it in years, and I thought just started aching to teach it again. Same way when I was reading Troilus and Cressida, I was felt, i, I got to get back to Shakespeare. <laughs> in any event, I want to just bring out a few things, and there, some of these things are in Browdy, so I'll read from Browdy as well, but then I'll, I'll turn to uh, the text of Virgil. For Virgil, there's only one word, it's fama, fama, means fame. For Virgil, he uses it in many contexts, and English translators translate it differently according to the context. Sometimes it's very—it's the old-fashioned fama that all the all the Homeric heroes uh, sought, and so on. That everybody, uh, all the adulation has to do with that. It's fame in that really significant sense, which was significant for the the Christianity criticized that fame very profoundly. But nevertheless, in the Greco-Roman world, it was the only thing to aspire to. Sometimes Virgil talks that way. And other times he talks about fame. And the English translators translate it rumor, gossip. You see, it's, it's vulgar fame. It's deconstructing fame. It's fame that causes crowd contagion. It's the stuff that destroys culture, you see. So in that sense, I know this is t- too complicated, really, but modern philosophers like Nietzsche and Heidegger and others have hearkened back to Heraclitus, who was a pre-Socratic philosopher, who had this notion of, of uh, the, the logos of violence. Polemos is his word for strife or violence. He says violence has its own logos, and violence both destroys order and creates it. And it destroys it and creates it according to its own logic. So, for example, you could say, if you see everything falling apart, not to worry, because there is in all of that strife and violence a logic all its own. And if you just let it run its course, pretty soon it will produce order. When you first see it, it looks, this is disorder. 
And then it produces order. And that's about all Heraclitus had to say on the subject. And the modern philosophers go back and say, this is brilliant. They don't quite understand it, and they have every, everybody has a way of explicating it. Well, I think Girard has explicated it uh, supremely, and that is the, the order is restored when that crazy, mad mob finally polarizes around the victim and moves from the all against all, the war of all against all, what, what uh, Thomas Hobbes called the war of all against all, becomes the, the, the war of all against one. Becomes, and that is, that's the restoration of order. You know, we've been over this a million times. All I'm trying to say is, polemos for Heraclitus was the poison that destroyed everything and the cure that restored order. An almost exact parallel, it seems to me, is Virgil's notion of fame. There is a fame that is synonymous with order. It's the fame of of Aeneas, the great founder of Rome, you see, or the one who prepared for the founding of Rome. The fame that goes to Caesar Augustus. He's writing his poem in honor of Augustus, you know. That kind of fame keeps us, keeps order. We need that kind of fame. What is it? It's transcendence. It's the deification of the famous. It's it's doing on a large scale what the Dalai Lama said a Buddhist uh, practitioner should do in his spiritual practices. It's putting this observed of all observers on another level altogether. And for Virgil, that is absolutely key to some kind of social, cultural order. On the other hand, there's this other kind of fame which destroys precisely that kind. And all you have to do is cut to the editorial meeting that I just talked about a few minutes ago to get what that's like, which is destroy everything, level everything. And then what do you have? Virgil is the one who describes what happens when the leveling takes place. And the agent of that leveling is fama, fame. Even though you could say in Virgil, the name of the cult, of cultural order itself is fama, fame. When it begins to be destroyed, it's also called fama. Aeneas lands at Carthage. Dido is the queen. She falls in love with him. It's a ruse. It's done. Uh, it's a. It's it's a setup job. Anyway, she falls in love with him, and it's like a grade B movie. They're out uh, in the countryside, and the storm comes up, and they take refuge in the cave, and and uh, their their uh, amorous uh, entanglement is consummated. With the storms going on outside, and so on, and immediately the rumor begins to spread that this has happened. And this rumor, the, the, the Latin word for it is fama. You see? Now, I, I want to I come back to that and quote some things from Virgil's Aeneid. But it, for the time being, Browdy is simply talking about two kinds of fame in, in Virgil, the fama that runs around the world to spread gossip with a thousand tongues about what Aeneas and Dido are doing in the cave and other such things. And at the other end of the spectrum, says Browdy, is the fama that warriors properly seek, the fama validated and approved by the gods, the fama of Augustus Caesar, quote, that ends only in the stars, the fama of becoming like Aeneas, quote, 
known by fame in the heavens above, ends only in the stars, known by fame in the heavens above. It's transcendence. It's the fama that produces something transcendent as opposed to the fama that destroys all transcendence. You see? Both. You see, it's this absolutely fickle thing. It creates transcendence. It's a false transcendence that it creates. But the false transcendence, like the, like the trans- transference relationship, has therapeutic value, you see. We may not be able to, uh, to reap its benefits because we can't, its, it's idolatry may become uh, an offense to us, a scandal to us. Nevertheless, all I'm saying is, for Virgil, who's, who in a sense is, is diagnosing culture, he sees that it's the same thing. So that fame has its own logos in the same, exactly the same way that Polemos has its own logos. It destroys order and it creates order. Now, how does it create order? How does it come out of this confusion and suddenly produce a hero? And the hero then becomes Achilles who then becomes one of the stars, is celestialized, becomes divine in that sense. How does it do that? Who is this hero? He's the sacred executioner. He's the one who kills the terrible monster. So the fame that creates the war produces the precondition, the predisposition for some kind of sacralizing transcendence which is, which is immediately... Uh, focused on the sacred executioner, the one who stands up and kills the monster and receives everybody's applause, you see. And then you have the good fame. It's exact parallel to, to the Heraclitan Logos is what I'm saying. I know it's kind of complicated what I'm trying to say here, but if we understood this pattern, I think we'd understand the crisis of the modern world. Let, so let me um, let me read from Virgil, so you get a feel for what's happening in our world. I don't care about Aeneas and Dido right now. I'm, I mean, I started reading Virgil again. I kind of got interested. So I might get off, I might get carried away. But fundamentally, what I'm trying to get at is when Aeneas lands, he's like the plague. He's like the Christian revelation almost. He lands, <clears throat> Carthage is in perfectly good shape, you know, and it has a queen at the top. Everybody reveres her and and uh, the the building is going on. I mean, Carthage is really coming up. Uh, it's 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 uh, up and coming. You know, it's really it's in the process of turning bricks into marble. And Aeneas lands, and she falls in love with Aeneas, and then she submits to him. And in this cave, uh, they they consummate this uh, this uh, romance of theirs. And suddenly, instantly, the rumor spreads. And the rumor is, of course, that our queen is sleeping around with these foreigners. I mean, you'd see, that that's the way it would be on the tabloids if it were now, you see. So here's what happens. What does that mean? It means that all of Carthage became like that editorial meeting. You see what I'm saying? This is what, this, what I'm trying to see this parallel. Here's how it works. And here's the consequences. This is Virgil. Then, swiftest of all evils, fame... Now, I'm reading the Mandelbaum translation. Mandelbaum, almost all English translators, at this point translate the, the word fama as rumor or gossip. But in order to get the 
the Heracliton paradox, we have to, I think, retain the word fame because there's the fame that creates order and there's the fame that destroys order. And the fame that destroys order is the Andy Warhol 15-minute variety that's a sack full of resentment towards anybody. The reason it's only 15 minutes is because that's how long it takes for somebody to organize an editorial meeting. <laughs> you see what I'm trying to say? It's the world we... It's the world we live in. So Virgil says, Then swiftest of all evils, fame or rumor, runs straightway through Libya's mighty cities, fame or rumor, whose life is speed, whose going gives her force. Timid and small at first, she soon lifts up her body in the air. So it begins with just a couple of... a little, you know, a little comment at the coffee break. You know, it's... A, some little thing, well, what, you know, nitpicking. It starts that way. And, and before long, it's the French Revolution. You see what I mean? That's what he's saying. Timid and small at first, she soon lifts up her body in the air, fast-footed and lithe of wing. She is a terrifying, enormous monster. Now get the, the profile here. First of all, she's a she. I'll come back to that. We don't... Virgil knows how to undercut that too. But uh, for the time being, don't let it trouble you. Fast-footed and lithe of wing, she is a terrifying, enormous monster. Now, look at the close, look closely at the details. A monster with as many feathers as she has sleepless eyes beneath each feather, amazingly, as many sounding tongues and mouths and raises up as many ears. So what is fame? Fame is many eyes, many tongues, many mouths, and many ears. Fame is mob contagion. Fame is mob contagion. And you can call it fame, you can speak of it, you can personify it precisely because it has its own logos. That is to say, it's not random. It operates according to a certain logic. It starts... And suddenly it starts to take shape. It starts to focus itself and it moves in a certain direction. All ancient peoples, when they observed this process, made the obvious assumption that a god was in control. And that's why they always attributed it to God. Because they said, look, this bunch of unwashed, crazy people out here, suddenly they're just going all in all directions and suddenly they're going in one direction. How could that be? No leader could have pulled it off. It couldn't have happened. There was, first of all, there was no leader. Secondly, had there been one, even the best of, of one, it, he or she couldn't have done it. How could it have happened? It must have been divine intervention. And it was obvious, the obvious conclusion to make, you see. And so Virgil, in a sense, uh, con uh, uses that conceit, which is that this figure, this monstrous figure, fame, but if you look just below, you say, what is this thing? Many mouths, many tongues, many eyes, and many ears. It's a mob. But it's behaving. You know, Kennedy, in his book on crowds and power, talks about uh, the mob as the pure crowd. The pure crowd is the crowd without a leader that's moving nevertheless in one direction. The pure crowd. You see what I mean? This is not the way it's done in Virgil, but you could say fame with a small f. Is, is mimetic contagion that's destroying all, stru all structures and forms. It's leveling everything. And so it's a synonym for mimetic contagion. 
It's also the birth of myth. It's also the birth of myth in the, in, for this reason. Fame creates this frenzy, this confusion, which in a sense is the, is, is the epistemological preparation for myth. That's to say, when we get caught up in this craziness, which we in our society are getting caught up in, you can tell because all the AM radio stations now are, are slash-and-burn talk radio programs. You see, it's all disseminating resentment. It's all just kind of coming, you know, it's, so we're in this world where everything is creating this kind, it's, everything is talk, 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 and no real thought. You see, it's the precondition for myth. And, and everything is a, is, is a, is a way of giving vent to resentment. And that creates this epistemological precondition for believing any cockeyed thing that comes along, if enough people believe it all of a sudden. And so you get... So I'm, so. And Virgil knows that because he says this about Fama. He says, she holds fast to falsehood and distortion as often as to messages of truth. That is to say, the myth that comes out of this is not total hogwash. If it were total hogwash, we wouldn't have to worry with it. It wouldn't... It would have no claim on us. We would we could dispense with it, but we can't because there's some truth in it. When the myth says that the great hero very boldly killed the monster and out of the blood of her of her wretched corpse created the world, you you realize there was no the the, the bold hero was just this you know the sacred executioner uh, that the creation of the world is a metaphor for creating social life and so on. Nevertheless, somebody died, so there's a truth in there. There's a truth in it. So he says, Virgil says, she holds fast to falsehood and distortion as often as to messages of truth. She fills the ears of all with many tales. She sings of what was done and what was fiction, both. Such reports the filthy goddess scatters everywhere upon the lips of men. Now this is interesting because we're, we're, we're getting up in arms here about this goddess Fama. We're thinking, oh, she's a terrible one, this goddess Fama, we've got to watch out for her. And then suddenly we realize, uh, in the other passage, we, we found out many, li- many mouths, many eyes, many ears, uh, many tongues, so we know it's a crowd. But here, this terrible, wretched goddess, filthy goddess, and then the lips of men. And by the way, this is men. This is male menness here. <laughs> so uh, there are a number of passages where Virgil's talking about what seems to be this feminine monster and suddenly you see just on the other side of it men being violent. You see what I mean? So we have to be able to read through that. And Virgil has, has written a transparent text in places where you see that. We're here to talk about fame, among other things. We're here to find out about the modern crisis. Think about it out loud. And, and like Browdy, I think fame is the, the phenomenon of fame in our world, which is so confusing, is a, a, a salient symptom. For Virgil, fame is contagion. There's good fame when the contagion is polarized and unanimous, and there's bad fame when it's going in all directions and creating a crisis, destroying all uh, all structures and hierarchies and everything else. And then Browdy says, Fama rages and confuses. And then, and then Browdy says, later in the Aeneid, Fama's description is echoed in Virgil's picture of Electo. 
another goddess who stirs up war between the troops of Aeneas and Latin peoples by maddening the Italian women and turning them into rioting followers of Dionysus. Electo is one of the Furies. The Furies destroy everything. She's a literary symbol for the frenzied crowd. Earlier I quoted Virgil to the effect that what was infecting Carthage was what he calls unholy fame or rumor. The way to make fame holy is to sacrifice, to, to make holy means, the sacrifice means to make holy. And that is to say the sacred executioner uh, kills the monster. And that sacred executioner becomes, you see, at the end of the Aeneid, Aeneas runs a sword through Turnus, his arch-rival, his double, and becomes the founder of Rome, so to speak, or the precursor to the founders of Rome. And that's how you do it. That's how you turn... That's how you turn vulgar fame into transcendent fame. Exactly that way. If you have a copy, if you have the Mandelbaum translation in hardback of, of Virgil's Aeneid, it has ink washes by Barry Mosier. And the ink wash that accompanies that last scene where, where Aeneas kills Turnus is one of the most extraordinary things visual representations and you see how the victor is the defeated one it's uh, it's almost a it's it's almost the reversal of of the christian revelation but it, in anticipating the christian revelation it's too complicated for me to get into that right now but it's quite extraordinary the point i wanted to make is just that the way you turn vulgar or destructive fame into constructive and transcendent fame is via sacrifice, the sacred executioner, which is just what the Eumenides say in Aeschylus's play, the Eumenides. Now, this is relevant to the discussion because among the, the female uh, figures that take the rap for this kind of thing are the Furies. Electo, so we have the the goddess or the monster goddess Fama, and the, the whole Dionysian cult is part of that as well. And then Electo, who's one of the Furies. Now, you, this this is I don't mean this to be an ex, you know excursion through classical literature, but I think these things help. They give us a distant mirror again. In in Aeschylus's Eumenides, something absolutely amazing happens. Is the Furies. The, the the place is under is in the grip of the furies. Everybody is murdering everybody. The, there's reciprocal violence going on. There's revenge. Every violence provokes another act of violence, and the whole thing just starts to snowball snowball into this general bloodletting. And then, boom! Suddenly, there's peace, and the furies experience this marvelous conversion, and then they become the Eumenides. The, the sponsors of civil order and peace and harmony, and we begin the great golden age of Athens. Suddenly this transformation from the Furies to the Eumenides. How does it take place? Here's what Aeschylus says. 
these are the words of the Eumenides speaking after they have experienced this conversion, so to speak. This I pray, they speak with a singular voice as the chorus does in, in Greek tragedy. This I pray, may faction, insatiate of ill, never raise her loud voice in this city. May not the dust that drinks the black blood of citizens in its passion for vengeance demand a bloody ransom to still the city's frenzy. May joy be exchanged for joy in a common love, and may we hate with a single soul, for this is man's great remedy. End quote. How does this transformation take place? Suddenly, the Athenians decide to export their violence and to aim it at their political enemies outside of Athens instead of letting it eat them alive inside of Athens. That's the gesture of the sacred executioner. That is to say, one designates the expendable victim outside the circle of, of those who, whose death would cause revenge, would be the occasion for revenge. So the humanities, the, the fury, or, so, the, so the fama, the breakdown, the, the, the scandal, the gospel word for, for fama here is scandal. The scandal that destroys everything it is brought to an end when the sacred executioner focuses the violence on expendable victims, which is just what the humanities do. Our century, the 20th century, has been one long attempt to find expendable victims so that we can take advantage of what the humanities call man's greatest remedy. And unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it, we live in a world that's too small. We can't do it. You would have thought the Vietnamese would have been a good choice. You know, they're a long way away. They, uh, they, they're physically different. They're culturally different, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It didn't work. You see, we can't do it anymore. Once we can't do it, we're faced with... This is what I tried to say in the book. Once we can't do that, we're faced with a fundamental challenge. We either fundamentally alter or experience an alteration, which is synonymous, I would say, with Christian conversion, or we risk slipping into the apocalypse. Virgil says of Dido, she's ignorant of fate, and as a result of that, she... Uh, she got caught up in this crazy contagion that ended in her suicide. And so now I want to read to you something. The last thing I want to do today is read to you something, another thing from the newspaper. And some of it I'll be able to make sense out of, and some of it is completely meaningful in some mysterious way. I don't quite understand. But I know it's, it, it's a supreme symptom of the world we live in. Before I read it to you, last week or week before I talked about this group called Nine Inch Nails and the lead singer is Trent Reasoner. And in the article I quoted, there was a little picture and a caption under the picture quoted a fan of Reasoner's. 
saying, quote, he's a good-looking guy, but it's his anger that gets to me, end quote. So that's, that's the rubric in terms of which I want to read the following article. By the way, once again, I'm not trying to scapegoat these people. As a matter of fact, in a way, I wish we could block out the names and just read the article, but I tried that in my mind and it didn't work. So I'm just going to read it. So it was was in the New York Times. It's not so. There's nothing secret about it. I'm just going to read to you from the New York Times, and and think about things a little bit. This was an article last week entitled "Courtney Love Spurns Role of Female Victim." It begins this way: After the suicide of her husband, Kurt Cobain, ten months ago, Courtney Love acquired a strange distinction reserved for presidents, major felons, and celebrity widows. Every word she said and wrote became newsworthy. Her travels to Buddhist monasteries and lingerie shops were followed in gossip columns. This is like Dido coming out of the cave, isn't it? You see, the rumor suddenly begins to move. Okay. On Tuesday night at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, as her band the name of which is Hole, uh, taped an unplugged performance for broadcast on MTV in April, Miss Love struck back at all this uh, media attention. Look out the window and what do I see, she sang in her hoarse growl, dozens of people staring back at me, and it's strange. End quote. The song, Season of the Witch, an altered version of the Donovan tune, took on new meaning in light of Miss Love's ascendancy to most-watched celebrity status. Again, if we understood that fame, really modern fame in this sense I'm talking about here, is a form of the old sacrificial system, one would, be, uh, one would get a little nervous to discover that one had just ascended to the most-watched celebrity status. Uh, any, anyway... Uh, this uh, song, Season of the Witch, uh, took on new meaning in light of this new status of hers. It's still quoting from the article. It's chorus, quote, You guys pick up on every stitch must be the season of the witch. Sounded like the anguished cry of a woman who can't sneeze without being accused by some of not using a tissue and promised a tissue factory by others. Seems like a clumsy metaphor, but anyway. Then the article goes on. On Thursday night at Roseland, in the second of two sold-out shows, Miss Love did not perform Season of the Witch, but she did have occasion to recite its chorus. After she executed her traditional dive into the audience during the encore, she returned to the stage, mauled by the crowd with her dress hiked to her waist. She walked to the microphone and said her new mantra, you guys pick up on every stitch, must be the season of the witch, as if simultaneously wreaking revenge and displaying the accuracy of the prophecy. End quote. I want to go on, but... Now, I, you see, what turns the, the vulgar fama that's destroying everything into the fama that creates order. Sacrifice, the sacred executioner, something like that. Remember, at the, 
at the end of the, the crisis of the French Revolution, as we talked about a few weeks ago, Robespierre organized the Festival of the Supreme Being, and he marched in it dressed as a suicide. And not long thereafter, he was guillotined. Can we say... You see, if you try to understand that psychoanalytically, you can't. If you try to understand it in terms of the motivation of, of individuals in that caught up in that craziness, you can't. Any more than you can then you can understand a crowd phen phenomenon psychoanalytically. You can't do it that way. Freud's attempt to understand the crowd is the weakest part of his whole system, and his whole system has uh, lots of weaknesses. But his attempt to understand the crowd is the weakest part because you can't understand these, these things in terms of the, of the psychological dynamics of the individual. So look at... Robespierre, in the midst, at the end of this crazy crisis, marching in the, sacrali the, 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 the festival that was designed to sacralize it all, to sacralize it. The, the festival of the supreme being was, the, was, the, was designed to, to lend sacrality to the bloodletting. And the man who had served as the sacred executioner marched in the parade dressed as a suicide and shortly thereafter he was guillotined. How do you explain it? You see, you have to, you have to talk about the powers and principalities. You have to talk about something else, some other force that's so powerful we get caught up in it. And it's, So if you analyze it in terms of one person's psychology, you can't get at it. Okay, now, with that as a background, look at this. We're in a crisis. So, the new mantra for this young woman is, it's the season of the witch. As an encore, she throws herself, first of all, the crowd's going nuts. She throws herself into the crowd, and she comes back up on stage, having been mauled by the crowd. And she says it must be the season of the witch. Now, let's hope it doesn't come to this, but fast forward. You see what I mean? I saw a friend the other day who reminded me of something I'd heard years ago and hadn't heard it in a long time, which is, if you keep going the way you're going, you'll end up where you're headed. Well, fast forward. And does there come a day when she throws herself into the crowd, and it in fact becomes the season of the witch, and she doesn't make it back to the stage. Ask yourself that. It's a, it's a terrible thing to contemplate, but you see, this is the kind of... What I'm saying is we're in a world like that, and we don't realize it. We just think, well, these rock concerts are getting a little raunchy. We don't see what's happening. Okay, and it's and so does this mean that this young woman is a is a brilliant anthropologist because she can because this has become her mantra? No, no more than that. That Robespierre was suddenly understood the whole thing. It's it it has its own logic. That's what I'm saying. It has its own logic. The fama has its own logic in the same way that the polemos that it generates has its own logic. But 
we also there is also the ontological effects of this, and that to some extent we can understand psychologically. I think not entirely, but we can understand that to some extent psychologically. So I'll read on in the article. On Doll Parts, which is a song, from Hole's second and most recent album, Live Through This, Miss Love sings, quote, I want to be the girl with the most cake. It is this need for more attention and approval than those around her get that has dogged Miss Love her whole life. I want to be the girl with the most cake, but obviously, as this reviewer notes, cake is a metaphor for fame. I want to be the one with the most cake. How do you, how do you be the one with the most cake, you see? What does that mean? Now, now I want to take you back to what Richard Rodriguez said about Tina Brown, which is that she's obsessed with celebrity. Her obsession with celebrity reveals a resentment of those more famous than she. You see, I want to be the one with the most cake. What does that mean? It means, do you have what is fame anyway? It's a, it's a pure. It's pure metaphysics. It's pure metaphysics. It means nothing. To, to want to be the one with the most cake, to want to have the most fame, has nothing to do with wanting to accomplish something that makes you It just seems, means more fame. It means what you do is like a children standing around a cake. It's a good metaphor for a cake. You get three, children, three, four kids around cake, and you slice it up. And they all look around to see who, got, who has the biggest slice. So... To want to be the one with the most cake is to be always looking on at the others. In other words, it's pure mimesis. There's nothing substantial about it. It's compared to what? That's what it is. It's compared to what? And it's like Alexander. Browdy said Alexander was the first famous person and the next sentence was nothing was ever enough for him. Because the, the desire for fame is pure metaphysics. It's always compared to whom, you see? Okay, so anyway, there, there you have that. And then she says, then the article goes on. Uh, the article then says, Though she is one of the most hounded performers in rock music, she continues to be a near mythomaniac driven by a need to belong. Miss Love is a twisted feminist willing to break the constrictions society puts on its female celebrities, uh, but only to a point. As she told an interviewer last year, explaining her nose job, weight loss, and dyed blonde hair, quote, I want my anger to be valid. And the only way to do that is to be fairly attractive, end quote. Now, we think, oh, well, this girl needs to go see somebody. and You know, she needs a psychotherapist. No, I mean... What we have to see here is not a, a personal psychological quirk. What we have to see here is a symptom of the disease we all have. The F Trent Reasoner fan said, quote, He's a good-looking guy, but it's his anger that gets to me. Now notice in that quote, you have two things. You have physical and sexual attractiveness and you have anger. And they're connected in some strange connection in that... I mean, what does that have to do with it? He's a good-looking guy, but it's his anger that gets to me. And she now says, 
I want my anger to be valid, and the only way to do that is to be fairly attractive. How do you make your anger valid? There's only one way, as far as I know, to make anger valid in the modern world, and that is to be a victim. You see what I mean? Now, how do you... Now, the next... The next uh, paragraph is the following. In this song called Drowned Soda, Miss Love sang, quote, Are you going to watch me, watch me while I drown? End quote. Sounding like Robespierre. Those were Mr. Co- Mr. Cobain's words, her husband before he committed suicide. Sentiments of a rock star who couldn't reconcile his life with his myth. Those are the words of a victim who has given up the struggle, as opposed to Miss Love's lyrics of bitter self-determination. It may be the season of the witch, but Miss Love is not about to let herself be burned at the stake. Instead, she will make the witch the heroine of the story, because she knows that no emotion a witch feels can be as ugly as the savage pleasure and mob mentality of those on a witch hunt. End quote. This is too much for me. I mean, I finally have to, I, I finally have to just say, there's something there. I don't know how to comment on that. I don't know how to comment on that. First of all, it's too tragic in a way. And one, you know, feels a little reserve about commenting on that, a situation like that. But perhaps, a, perhaps one thing that could be said is that she says, I want to make my anger valid. I think the only way is to be a victim. And then it says she doesn't want to be a victim. She's going to make the witch. So the witch is the quintessential victim. That's what the witch is. For us, for the for the medieval people, the witch was the the you know the demon possessed one that we had to expel. But we live at a later stage in the revelation of that whole that whole perverse system. So we now understand that the witch was the innocent one, not because she was morally innocent but because the crowd that killed her was in a total delusion. So now it's the it's suddenly now the season of the witch. But also we've turned it around. It's to be a witch now is to be the victim, but to be the victim is to have is to be the moral on the moral high ground. And it says she knows that no emotion a witch feels can be as ugly as the savage pleasure and mob mentality of the witch hunters. So in a way, to be the witch now is to, is to have moral immunity. Because if the witch hunting mob comes to get you, no, no matter what you've done, you will be regarded as innocent, which is true in a way. Structurally, the person would be true. I mean, it is true that the witch, no matter what her moral flaws, is structurally innocent in that sense. I don't know how to comment on it. I'm just, I, I would just commend it to you as a symptom 
of what happens when that destructive kind of fama or fame begins to destroy everything and it gets to that place where it starts to produce. I've said it so often about the Dionysian process, which is just another version of the same thing. It creates a carnivalesque atmosphere and destroys everything and creates a kind of mental uh, a state of radical mental uh, disintegration and distraction, which makes it possible for certain things to happen and evade our moral and uh, intellectual scrutiny. And then it turns into the sacrificial, goes from the, from the carnivalesque into the sacrificial. And I think fame is likewise. It creates this craziness, and suddenly the craziness gets to be 15 minutes. Everybody gets it. The, the editorial meetings come together very quickly. The, every, the people that have been put on the pedestals are taken down instantly. New ones are put up. Old ones are taken down. They come and go, come and go, come and go. The thing gets frantic. It's des- the system itself begins to look for some way. I, you could say that. The system itself begins to look for some way to cure itself. And there's only one way to cure itself. It doesn't work anymore. And that's precisely the problem. It doesn't work anymore. And in some strange way, this young woman senses, I wouldn't even say senses, she's become a, 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 a symptom of it. It's the season of the witch. She's throwing herself into the crowd. Now, the final thing to say is that the people who are most likely to fall into this kind of hysteria will make the best Christians if they're ever converted. Paul, you know, was filled with zeal to crush the Christians, and he had a conversion. Augustine was this. Augustine would have been at one of these rock concerts. You see, that's what he would have been doing, and he had this conversion. So, hysterics are people who are hypermimetic, and so are mystics. A hysteric is simply a mystic waiting for the call. So if these people that I'm talking about had a conversion, they would put us all to shame. We would be sitting there in the pew trying to be nice people and they would be with John of the Cross. We should always bear that in mind, a little humility. We can't see the forest for the trees. We, we don't realize that something's going on that does not have to do with good people and bad people. It doesn't have to do with a good system or a bad system. It doesn't have to do with politics, fundamentally. If we change the political system, what, what's happening in our world is structures are being, are being compromised by the biblical revelation. And we, we could replace those structures until the cows come home, it wouldn't have any effect. They're going to constantly be compromised. We, I think we're in, a, in, in an, an amazing moment of, of, uh, of cultural history. 
I've been using this idea from Barbara Tuckman's uh, book of 10 or 20 years ago, The Distant Mirror, the idea that we can go back and see in these uh, ancient situations or ancient texts something about our own condition. And I want to do that again today. I specifically want to look at Ovid, the writings of Ovid, which seems right away you think, oh, I think I'll sleep this one out. You know, He's going to talk about Ovid. Uh, I'm doing it because, again, because Browdy is doing a historical retrospective and he's coming to his discussion of Ovid, which is very brief, by the way. Nevertheless, I think it's extremely uh, uh, apropos of something that we need to look at, and I think it represents for us a distant mirror in a very important way. But before I get into that, the whole question of a distant mirror has to be, has to be raised because it implies something. It implies that these ancient situations are more or less analogous to our own. And one has a right to say, well, wait a minute, Gil, I thought your underlying premise was that our situation was unprecedented. And if it's unprecedented, then what, what really is the value of these distant mirrors? And so here's I would like to address that issue before we start. And I would do it this way. Our situation is unprecedented. Uh, but the nature of the unprecedented situation of our time is as follows, as I see it. Let me go back, because I will talk a little bit, probably a little bit later on today about this as well. I mentioned in earlier sessions... Uh, Heraclitus. See, this is why <laughs> Heraclitus. What is? What am I doing talking about Heraclitus? Heraclitus is a pre-Socratic philosopher whose writings are aphoristic and and uh, not systematic at all. Nevertheless, the people who have tried to rethink philosophy in the modern world—Nietzsche, Heidegger, and others—have returned consistently to Heraclitus. Uh, and Parmenides, but Heraclitus perhaps most importantly, uh, in order to try to rethink what philosophy is and what it means. Well, Heraclitus was, uh, you could say, the first philosopher or the proto-philosopher. But his great contribution, I think, was that he saw the cultural mechanisms from outside the mythological purview, the outside the myth- mythological envelope in terms of which most people were seeing it. So, for example, he was critical of the conventional religion of his time, which was pagan religion. And <clears throat> Heraclitus didn't, uh, didn't oppose the existing uh, religious system, which was a sacrificial system, of course. He didn't oppose it for religious reasons. He opposed it because he saw its falsity and perversity. And that's important to note because it's also true that that the tragedians, Greek tragedians, in a sense, opposed it, <clears throat> partly because they saw its falsity and perversity. And to some extent, they, some of the Greek tragedians, had religious sensibilities, but they didn't oppose what they saw as the falsity and perversity of the existing uh, cultural and religious enterprise. They didn't oppose it vigorously from a religious perspective. They simply saw its... And and to see its perversities is to see its sacrificialities, to see that it needs victims and creates victims. 
that at its heart is violence. And that was what Heraclitus saw. If you compare, for example, Jeremiah, who opposes the sacrificial system, but he opposes it from a religious perspective. And so he's in a tradition that is systematically dismantling the sacrificial apparatus, uh, the, the old sacred system. But it's systematically dismantling the old sacred system out of a religious impulse, you see? And that's the sustainable uh, critique of the old sacred system. Other critiques always only manage to critique its, its immediate manifestation. But because they don't see the larger picture, uh, they, um, uh, their critique doesn't, doesn't last. And for example, Heraclitus was forgotten for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, but <clears throat> I call attention to Heraclitus because he, sp he spoke of, as I s talked about in earlier weeks, he spoke of vi violence or polemos. His word is polemos, which is strife or violence. He says, he's, he's, you have to see who he's speaking to. He's speaking to conventional religious people who are going into the, to the temple of Zeus or Diana and offering their sacrifices or participating in their, in their rituals. And he's saying to them, much like Jeremiah said as, as he mocked the people going into the temple, he's saying to them, this isn't what it's about. You don't see. What's really at the heart of all of this is violence. And this violence, this polemos, he says, Heraclitus says, is the king and father of all things. This violence creates order and it destroys order. And in creating order, and it brings order out of the destruction of the earlier order that, w that it destroyed. And a salient feature of the way in which it converts disorder into order is that it separates the gods from the mortals. In other words, its creation of order has to do with the creation of hierarchy. The ultimate hierarchy, of course, is the sacred and the profane. All hierarchy that is sustainable is sustainable on, in terms of the sacred and the profane. That's why as soon as you deconstruct the primitive sacred, you bring into question the world's sense of hierarchy. There is, of course, a, a, another sense of hierarchy, but it is not the hierarchy of power and structure that the old sacred system is able to generate. That, that's a discussion for another time. But uh, the point I'm trying to make here is that, is that the old sacred system creates the hierarchy and the, the essence of the hierarchy is the absolute distinction between the gods and the mortals. Now, Behind Heraclitus' analysis of things is the understanding that violence, polemo, is both destructive and generative. It can generate new cultural forms. And in the process, by the way, anytime you say cultural in this respect, you always have to think of, you always have to put in parentheses next to it psychological, because the, the generation of cultural stability. Uh, at the same time provides the wherewithal for psychological stability. So the polemos or violence in, in Heraclitus's world is still generative. It can still produce order. What's unique and unprecedented about our world is that we no longer live in a world which can generate order out of violence. That's the news. That's the news. And the reason we can't do it is because the cross has destroyed the myth that makes it possible for us to sacralize our violence. So we're in an unprecedented world. Nevertheless, it's very helpful to look back when you have very insightful and brilliant analyses 
of the collapse of the old order into chaos with all kinds of detailed and er details and everything, it's very helpful to look back at these uh, these historical events or literary uh, 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 events that detail that because the collapse of the old order into chaos, which is, as Girard would argue, a collapse into a kind of mimetic crisis, is still going on. That's perfectly relevant. That's historically relevant. That's what's happening. It, the only difference is, unlike the people of Heraclitus' this time, we can't, all the king's horses and all the king's men are not going to be able to put Hunter Dumpty back together again. If we're going to stay sane and civil, we're going to have to find another way of regenerating our civil and psychological and spiritual order, which is, I think, what the New Testament is all about. The New Testament, as Paul understood, is about creating a new polity, a new community, and about uh, discovering a new source of spiritual and psychological stability. I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. And so we have another way of, uh, of stabilizing our lives and grounding them in truth rather than in social constructs. As much as I part company with the average deconstructionist, there, it is true that uh, many, of our, many of our constructs are artificially constructed and they have to be deconstructed if we're going to get at the truth. Okay, so that was just a way of saying why, is, uh, why do we have distant mirrors when we're in an unprecedented situation? The collapse of the, of the sacred structure into the mimetic crisis that's recorded in these distant mirrors is still absolutely uh, apropos of our situation. Uh, what's not apropos is uh, any, uh, any uh, idea of, uh, of restructuring things. So I wanted to warm up here a little bit by quoting to you something from C.S. Lewis and then quibbling a little bit with it and then using it to see something. Lewis says, now because I'm going to be talking about, last week we talked about Virgil and this week we talk about Ovid. I'll talk about both of them a little bit, but mostly Ovid. Both of them are pagans. Pagan here is not not meaning something pejorative, just meaning polytheist in the Greco-Roman sense. Lewis says, Christians and pagans had much more in common with each other than either has with a post-Christian. The gap between those who worship different gods is not so wide as that between those who worship and those who do not. Now, I'm not so sure that's true. Uh, I think that the Christian has something in common with the atheist as well. Uh, certainly the Christian has something in common with those who are wary of religion. No doubt. And you know, Eckhart said, I pray God rid me of God. So I would say that Christianity does have some affinities uh, even with this post-Christian world that uh, Lewis is talking about. And I'm not sure that it's affinities with paganism in the sense that he's speaking of here um, are altogether that 
clear. Nevertheless, what's important about what C.S. Lewis has said uh, is this sentence. The gap between those who worship different gods is not so wide as that between those who worship and those who do not. Now, the word worship means transcendence. You see, That means, when one says one worships, that means there's something transcendent. Now, when a, a, a pagan went into the temple of Dionysus or Isis uh, or, or Athena, uh, there was a sense of transcendence, a worshipful uh, sense of things. The fact is, the, fa- the, the transcendence was a false transcendence. Nevertheless, it was socially and psychologically efficacious. There are things that are not true that are socially and psychologically efficacious. And one, one, de- one deconstructs them with a certain amount of uh, uh, misgivings, even though in order to get to the truth, you have to deconstruct them because they're, they're artificial constructs. Nevertheless, the point I'm trying to make is that when C.S. Lewis says some wor- the, those who worship and those who don't, the real, the real uh, uh, gap is between not between those who worship false gods and those who worship the true one, but between those who worship and those who don't. And I think there's some, something very valid about that because the absence of transcendence is a very, very, very profound uh, event. To go from a world which experiences transcendence, even if it might be experiencing it in terms of Zeus or Diana, to a world that does not experience it anymore is a very radical move. Nobody has ever tried it. Nobody has ever attempted to have a cultural enterprise that did not, that did not offer some kind of transcendence. We are the first people to ever try to do that. And, of course, we still try to make some kind of transcendence out of uh, what is at hand, you know, nations. You see, the, I mean, various forms of, of it have been coughed up in the last couple of hundred years. Uh, but we fundamentally, we live in a world that has lost its transcendence. And that's why it's important to read Ovid, because Ovid is describing precisely that kind of world. He's describing what happens in that kind of a world. C.S. Lewis then goes on to say, A post-Christian is not a pagan. You might as well think that a married woman recovers her virginity by divorce. The post-Christian is cut off from the Christian past and therefore doubly cut off from the pagan past. Now, this I think is important because what's implicit in this is that Christianity destroys our access to the pagan past. You cannot become a pagan once the gospel has taken hold of you because uh, pagan religion requires a mythological uh, perspective and the gospel destroys the mythological perspective. The mythological perspective always sees the sacrificial event from the point of view of the community that it brings together in solidarity. The gospel presents the sacrificial event from the point of view of the victim of that violence and not the point of view of the, of the community that experienced its camaraderie in committing the violence. It's radically at odds. You can't, it's, you can't have them both. And once the gospel has entered into the sensibilities of a person or a people, one simply cannot, I would argue this, one simply cannot return 
to the mythological frame of reference, even though we might want to. And we all sort of have this itch to do that, you know, to get back to some kind of mythic frame of reference. And we indulged that itch uh, in the 60s and 70s quite uh, flamboyantly. Uh, but it didn't work. And it won't work. So there's no going back. And so I think uh, C.S. Lewis had a sense of that. And he has a great reverence for the, the pagan tradition, by the way. He was a classical scholar. And uh, he spent a lot of time studying uh, myths and appreciating them. But he knew that we couldn't, we couldn't get back. While I'm talking about this, I think what I'd, I'll do is offer what I would consider to be a real sketchy and therefore overly simplistic a definition of a couple of terms that uh, C.S. Lewis uses, namely pagan, Christian, and what he calls post-Christian, I would call post-modern. These terms really overlap. So I would say a pagan world is a world in which there is a false form of transcendence, but one in which, in all likelihood, that form of transcendence is socially and psychologically efficacious. Now, we're going to notice this morning the transition from Virgil's form of paganism, which was one in which a, a sense of transcendence actually existed, and Ovid's form of paganism, which was one in which the transcendence was collapsing. And you realize that in Virgil's world, even though the transcendence was false, and Virgil knew it was false, the transcendence had social and psychological effects that were very beneficial. And uh, Ovid is beginning to describe a world in which those benefits are vanishing and the world is being thrown into something like a prefiguration of modernity. That's what makes Ovid such an interesting read. So the pagan world is one in which there's a false transcendence, but a transcendence that is nevertheless social and psychologically efficacious as long as it continues to be tenable, which is another way of saying until the gospel infects it. The Christian reality is a reality in which there is true transcendence, which one might say, well, that's your bias and that's uh, a uh, faith claim, and I would have to say, you're right. But that's how I see it. There is a true transcendence uh, in Christianity. Not that all Christians are engaged in, a, in an intimate uh, encounter with this true transcendence. That's another question. Uh, but whether Christianity has uh, posits true transcendence, uh, I think it does. And then finally, post-Christian, what uh, Lewis calls post-Christian, what we might call the post-modern, is a world in which there's no transcendence. And that is a world of scandal. The gospel word is scandal. Uh, Nietzsche's word is resentiment. Uh, Girard's term is the mimetic crisis, a world without transcendence. Now, this won't make any sense for a few minutes, and it may not make any sense even then, but uh, bear with me for, for a minute. I want to go back to Hosea. We talked about this passage in Hosea some time ago when Hosea talks about idolatry. Uh, and he's condemning in this passage not pagans, but people of biblical faith who revert or try to revert to paganism. 
I, earlier I spoke of in terms of the gospel versus myth, but it's also true in terms of the Judeo-Christian tradition versus myth. So uh, when Hosea says, here's what happens, he's describing not what happens to pagans, because pagans might not have this experience at all. He's describing what happens when people touched by the biblical virus try to revert to paganism. We should all take note, because there's a, a very robust, robust effort in our world to revert to paganism of one kind or another. And if, um, and if Hosea is right, uh, we're in for trouble. Here's what Hosea says. He said, first of all, he identifies this attempt to revert to paganism as idolatry, the worshiping of false idols. The modern form of that would be ideology. You see? Uh, so, but there are other forms of that too, which are also idolatrous in the more conventional sense. Hosea says, by casting images for themselves out of their silver, idols out of their own invention, they will become nothing but the morning mist, the dew that quickly disappears, the chaff whirled from the threshing floor. And what I tried to do the first time we brought this up is to, is to connect that with these observations by these deep French thinkers, uh, de Lubac and uh, Gabriel Marcel, who speak of <laughs> the lack of ontological density as the essential feature of our spiritually of our world, the lack of ontological density and the lack of ontological mooring. And I said earlier when we talked about this passage, passage from Hosea that it's a marvelous metaphor for that. The chaff that's whirled from the threshing floor is a marvelous metaphor for something that has lost its density and is, and is floating in the air, has no grounding, has no weight, has no gravitas, as we would say, you see? has lost its substance. And this is his picture of the attempt of, of biblical people attempting to return to paganism. It's not a picture of paganism. Because in a sense, paganism untouched by a revelation bigger than it is has its own benefits to bestow on its... It's always the benefits at the heart of that system is the Caiaphas principle. It's better that one should die than a whole nation should be destroyed. It's a sacrificial operation Nevertheless, it's civilizing and psychologically stabilizing and it has its own benefits. Once the biblical uh, thrust has broken into that world or into a person's life, the, the attempt to return to that world will produce this insubstantiality. The more one tries to revive the, the sacred system. And then, of course, in the New Testament, we have this notion of the, of the chaff in that's echoed again it's a slightly different metaphor but it's in the vine and branches discourse that's I think so essential for understanding the psychological uh, economy of, of the Christian revelation and in the vine and branches discourse Jesus says the, those uh, those branches that are that are not rooted in me in Christ the, uh, the vine system uh, will wither and grow brittle and combustible, and sooner or later they will be collected and burned. And the idea that this chaff or, or dried, withered material will sooner or later be collected, that is to say, gathered in some kind of collective event, and burned, some kind of conflagration, I think is, very, is a very powerful metaphor uh, for, 
for, if you will, some of the some of the most some of the most uh, devastating contagions of the 20th century. But I, I, I think of it as well uh, as having to do with Dido. Now, this is one of those transitions that's kind of awkward, I suppose, but last week I said that when Aeneas... Uh, so last week we were talking about Virgil, and I, I want to now make the transition from the world Virgil uh, is experiencing and, and cataloging in his epic to the world that Ovid experiences and catalogs in his. They're separated by very few years, but it happens to be years of very uh, profound significance in terms of a cultural shift. And we live in a world like that. Imagine how the world was seen in 1948 and experienced in 1948, and then how it's seen and experienced here less than 50 years later. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And something like that was happening between Virgil and Ovid. But anyway, I mentioned last week that that uh, uh, when Aeneas lands at Carthage where he meets Dido and falls in love with her and she falls in love with him, they consummate their uh, their affair and then he is told to go off and found Rome, which he does, and she commits suicide. I said that Aeneas, that everything was fine at Carthage. Dido was the queen. She was happy, powerful. People loved her. They were building the great city and so on. It was that, The building activity is what impressed Aeneas so much. He looked at this and he said, my gosh, here's a city already being built. Why go someplace else? Uh, so everything was fine. And then I said, well, Aeneas lands in Carthage almost like the gospel. His effect on Carthage is almost like the gospel. Suddenly, it's like somebody shoves a stick in the spokes and the whole thing goes crazy. The system falls apart. Dido, goes, Dido, who's the queen bee of the enterprise, loses her mind, goes raves all over the city and finally kills herself. And so Carthage is in smoke behind Aeneas's ship as he sets sail for Italy. Well, in a sense, Dido is a kind of, is a kind of uh, symbolic figure for understanding the transition between Virgil and, and Ovid. Whereas Virgil took Aeneas' side in the Aeneas-Dido tension, Ovid took Dido's side in it. Now, Ovid, this is an example. I'm going to liken Ovid to several in order, in order for Ovid to be a distant mirror, we have to see how the, how, where the parallel is. And I would say Ovid represents, to some extent, the feminist perspective. That is to say, he saw the perversity of the old system with regard to uh, women. And to that, to that extent, he's, he's right but since he only saw it in terms of one category of victim, to see the perversity of the conventional cultural apparatus is always to see its victim. It's only in light of its victims that its perversity really impinges upon us in any seriously moral way. And so what, what Ovid saw was the victims of, this, of this, the system that, that Virgil tried to sacralize. And the victims were 
quintessentially Dido-like, you see? They were the Didos of the world, the, who were, whose fate was regarded as expendable, you see, in order for this great enterprise to go on. And there's all, anytime you have a, a, a conventional cultural apparatus, you will have some great enterprise and some group of expendable victims. And so in that sense, uh, Ovid was right metaphorically to see Dido as pivotal. And the people who've read Ovid and, and Virgil uh, in contradistinction to one another were right to see that, that uh, connection. 